Well, hello, friends, and welcome to this week's edition of the Compelling Community Podcast. My name is Jonathan Worsley, and as always, I am joined by Matt McCullough. And on this weekly podcast, we have been studying the book The Compelling Community by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. And today we are happily all the way up to chapter nine, uh, which means we are uh, three quarters of the way through the book now. And uh, we've already thought uh, a lot about uh, the joys of having a church that is united around the wonderful uh, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and a church, therefore, that is socially and intellectually and culturally and racially and, a, and emotionally broad, and yet a church that is deep uh, with, with one another too, a church where uh, relationships are thick because we're willing to be in each other's lives and have conversations about uh, spiritual things and not just talk about the weather or football or whatever perhaps we, we normally do. And so in recent chapters, uh, we have thought about how to get that, uh, that uh, spiritually, uh, relationally driven church through preaching and, and through prayer and, and, and music and programs and staffing and all kinds of exciting stuff. But in this chapter, we are thinking more about protecting that because uh, newsflash, when you get a church that is spiritually mature and relationally deep, it is hard uh, to keep it. Which brings us to chapter 9 and the depressingly titled Addressing Discontentment <laughs> in the Church. Hmm. So, Matt, why burst the bubble of this positive book with a chapter on discontent? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I, I think they answer it for us on page 155. They write that discontent is inevitable, and, and my goodness, has that been true in my experience? And I think discontent is inevitable, not just because people are picky, though that can, that can be true. I certainly am. Um, discontent is inevitable because churches aren't perfect. Yeah. Uh, if you're paying attention, especially if you're deeply invested, you're going to see the imperfections. It's only a matter of time. And um, I think that the, the key to me is, is the way they round off that quote on 155. The discontent is inevitable. But broken unity isn't. And we know that unity is what brings God glory when people who aren't alike uh, are united around something they do share, mm. when, that, when what they share is Jesus. Mm. Um, I think that same kind of glory is, is seen when people aren't perfect but are still united despite it because of Jesus and what they have in him. So if you want a church that glorifies God, uh, discontent is really not something to shy away from. It's something to, to recognize, acknowledge, and then work through because he gets a special kind of glory from that when we do. Yeah, yeah. So discontentment will happen. Uh, we're sinners, but also we care. We care deeply about the church, and sometimes that is why discontentment bubbles up. So when that happens, whose job is it to fix it? Yeah. I mean, I think just a little bit of a confession on my part. I have always assumed at my gut level, on a functional level, it's my job to fix it. <laughs> uh, maybe that's also because people have always assumed that, but not really. In all seriousness, I, that, isn't, that isn't how I've been treated. It's something I've imposed on myself. I think that uh, it's natural to want to control things. It's especially natural to want to perfect something that's precious to you. 
something that you love and you feel the weight of it. The other thing that drives me sometimes to want to take that on myself is that usually when someone brings some sort of complaint, there's some truth in it. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of the chapter is this paragraph. I think it's on uh, page 160. Uh, there's this paragraph where he talks about that, how probably whatever somebody is noticing is actually there. It might be blown out of proportion for them. They might It might be too important to them. But if you just expect that all churches are imperfect, you should expect that somebody's probably onto something. Yeah. And if you care about the church and you want it to be healthy and you're a leader, it's hard not to personalize that and take it as something you're responsible to fix. Yeah. And and I think that the Bible also gives us responsibility for, for everything in our church. So you mean as pastors? As pastors, yeah. We, we are in some ways responsible, and, and any threat to unity is something we should take very seriously. But, and here's, here's the, the big but I'm building to, one of the worst things we can do is take the responsibility away from the congregation and put it on our own shoulders because we aren't going to be able to fix it. So many of the things that are, that are going to be imperfect in our church are beyond our ability to fix and if we take it on as our own personal responsibility as leaders, we're depriving the congregation of one of the ways God has called them to serve in, in being part of the, the health and growth and maturity of, of the congregation. And I guess lots of people just try, and I say people, I mean pastors try to fix that by just getting more staff to, to, to fix those problems. Yep. And um, that's often how many churches go. We want the congregation to understand that it's their responsibility in certain situations. Certainly, we're not going to go down the path of all the possible um, areas of, of discontent. But if you're making that point that it is the congregation's job, where are you going in the Bible? Because there's lots of passages in the Bible which talk about elders needing to lead. Yep. yep. So where are you going for this? Yeah. I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking of, of, of at least two examples that are fresh on my mind. One of them because they used it in the chapter, which I read yesterday. And one of them because it's in Philippians chapter 4, which I'm going to preach on in just a few days' time. So let me, let me go to Acts 6 first. This is one of their main passages from the chapter that I hope people are recognizing because the modeling there is just so powerful for us. You've got this situation where ethnic and cultural differences in the congregation are creating strain. One of the main ways God gets glory from a congregation is when people who are not like one another ethnically and culturally are united in Jesus. That takes work. Acts 6 shows us how much work it really takes. You've got some widows from one cultural background who seem to be overlooked, other widows from the majority culture background that are getting preferential treatment, and the apostles take it seriously. Yeah. They see it as something where God's glory in the community is at stake, yeah. so it must be handled. But their, their way of responding to it is not to, to create a spreadsheet and then organize the distribution in an equitable way. They call on the congregation to nominate people who'd be good at that to then go and do it. That's not them passing the buck. That's them cultivating a healthy church, being responsible to lead towards a solution that other people execute. So it's both and. Yes, pastors are called to lead, but in a very specific way. And then I jump to... Philippians chapter 4, I think in that passage, those first few verses of the chapter, we see Paul having a very similar role to what the apostles played in Acts 6, because he's gotten word that two women in this church that were important leaders were at odds. We don't know exactly why, but they were. And he, as a leader, writes a letter to try to resolve this thing, or to, to, to do what he can do to move towards resolving it. But he doesn't pronounce on how the thing should be resolved. He doesn't say, here's what happened, 
here's what Euodia needs to do, and here's what Syntyche needs to do. He just calls on others in that congregation to help them, to yeah. plead with them towards agreeing in the Lord. So he, he f- does two things there. He puts the responsibility on others in the congregation mm-hmm. to, to care for them, and then he calls them to unity in Christ as the solution, not some sort of shared understanding of what went wrong. So um, I, think that's, I think it's a fantastic model for what we as leaders are meant to do, to try to empower congreg- members of the congregation to be, to be moving in a Christ-centered, solution-oriented direction. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that, that Philippians 4 example, it's not something I've seen, but even as just us discussing uh, the upcoming sermon on Sunday, I think that's a really good example. I think, like you said, the Acts 6 is, is really important, partly because, you know, the congregation bring it, and they wisely bring it to the leaders. There's a recognition right. of authority and leadership. Right. And the leaders don't just say, like, oh, whatever, or just forget about it. But they do say our primary focus is the preaching of the word and, and, and prayer. Yep. And they, they make some kind of plan. But and essentially, they then give it back to the congregation uh, to, to work it out. So I, I think that's a great model. Um, I think also um, Galatians chapter 1 is quite helpful because that's a different kind of issue going on in the church. It's not an issue of serious uh, relational disunity, but serious theological disunity. But there, in Galatians 1, Paul says about these false teachers, uh, he says, I'm quoting from Galatians 1, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you, you plural, uh, a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you plural, let him be accursed, as we have said. So we say again, if anyone is preaching to you, plural, a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Mm-hmm. Again, he's saying you have the responsibility, not just your leaders. I mean, it's really striking, isn't it? Yep. Because we think in that particular example, we think, oh, the elders will have to sort this out. But actually, the, the buck kind of finally stops with the congregation. They're the kind of people to kind of pull the handbrake, yes. as it were, uh, on this issue, which is kind of theological, but will obviously cause disunity too. Okay, so there's going to be lots of different examples. We're not going to go down there, uh, that, that, that little rabbit hole. But how should members begin to deal with discontent? I'm thinking kind of more mm-hmm. generally now rather than thinking about all the specific different cases. Yep. I think I'd give different advice based on whether you're the one who's feeling discontent about something or you're talking to someone who's feeling discontent about something. So let's start with if you're the member who you've noticed a problem, a weakness, some sort of deficit in the congregation. Um, it's not hypothetical. If you're paying attention, you will notice things. What do you do? Yep. Um, I, I think the first step, because we trust the gospel and what it tells us about ourselves and our sinfulness, our utter depravity before God on our own, uh, we want to always be self-suspicious. Um, to caveat everything we've already said about how imperfect the church is going to be and how if you're paying attention, you'll see things that aren't what they, what they ought to be. Uh, standing by all of that, I still think it's a healthy first step for any Christian when they run into something that's not pleasing to them to check their heart first. Yep. Because we do all have still indwelling sin. That means we do st- still tend to put our own interests ahead of the interests of others. We do t- still tend to view everything through how it affects us. Um, we're not free of that yet. So 
you don't want to put on someone else a burden that really is is, is yours and your and and your need to to repent and believe. So I'd be self-suspicious and ask a lot of good questions about what it is you're seeing to make sure it's really there. And maybe even invite a friend that you trust to be part of that process with you. And then let's say you're self-suspicious, you check your heart, and you still see the problem there. Um, Then I think the next big important thing is to be solution-oriented with it. Uh, as, As you recognize an area that needs help, also do the constructive thinking of how can we how can we actually make this better I mean, one of the, one of the most rewarding things that i experience now as a pastor is when a member is invested enough to come to me with something they see as a problem but then also come to me with some solution that they want to pursue um, so the best solutions that you can bring to us are the ones you're up for you know yourself as opposed to here's how i think you ought to fix it uh, I love it when friends come and say, do you see this problem too, Matt? And what do you think if I was to try this? Um, and thankfully that happens pretty often. Um, yeah, it's worth saying that we're, we're not kind of anti-problem. Yeah, right. Um, right, we don't want to suppress that. Again, because we have, Lord willing, we have eyes open to the fact that our church isn't perfect yet, and we want it to be better next year than it is this year. Yep. Let me throw to you, though, on the other one. So I've been talking about how um, members, if they feel something in themselves rising up uh, about some problem or some deficit, how they can cope with that and try to be part of the solution to that. Let's say you're a member who has a friend who's brought to you something they see in the church that isn't what it could be. Um, how would you advise that member to counsel that friend who's seeing something that needs to be better? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um just, just before that, I think I'd also just want to highlight that when we are the one who sees the problem, I think there's a danger that we are quick to share that with just anyone who will mm-hmm. just fan that complaint. Yeah. Because that's what we're looking for. I think yeah. in my sinfulness, I see that. Yeah. We're quick to complain and we're quick to share it with someone who can't really do anything about it. Yeah. Instead of, like you said, checking your heart, but just being even slow to complain because it may be after you've done that process that you just outlined so well, we actually think I just, this is probably not a big deal. Yeah. So just sometimes giving it time is helpful, but then if it is a big deal, then sharing it with someone who's a leader. Yeah. In terms of how we actually deal with it when someone kind of comes to us. So uh, a few years ago, uh, I think it was uh, nine marks ministries did a journal entitled deacons are shock absorbers. Mm-hmm. Now, and our deacons is obviously a particular uh, role within the church. And you're thinking when you're thinking about deacons, you're thinking about those people in act six who are going to help with a particular issue uh, that's maybe causing this, this unity. And uh, we, we see deacons like, like elders, the certain standards for those. But I think everyone in the church should operate like a shock ex- yeah. absorber. And I think that's such a beautiful uh, illustration. I'm not a mechanic, but, you know, you, we know what a shock absorber does. You know, it absorbs the shock. And if someone comes with some kind of complaint, and instead of just kind of rebounding that and exacerbating that complaint, they, they kind of suck it up, as it were. And they, they, they take that and they listen really well to that complaint. Yeah. They hear that person out. But they're looking all the time to create as much unity as they yep. can in the church because they care deeply about the church. So they're not looking to kind of make this shock move out yep. um, into the whole congregation. They're looking to absorb as much as they can uh, from it and, and maybe kind of pass it on to other people. And yep. um, we've talked about that. I think that's really important too. 
And so I think a question to ask ourselves when someone comes to us with a complaint is just to say, how are we going to handle this in a way that, that helps the church as a whole? Because, you know, in, in our sinfulness, often we just, we just kind of love the drama yeah. of it all. And we like the, pers- the fact that person's come to us and, yep. and we want to kind of, kind of add fuel sometimes yeah. to that in our sinfulness because we like the fact that that person's coming to us and this is a big deal. You're right. Yep. And, and it goes out from there. So I think we have to be working at being shock absorbers. Yeah. I think that's a good yeah. illustration. Yeah, I don't know what it is about us, but I certainly resonate with what you've said, that, that when drama is on the horizon, uh, we just can't look away sometimes, kind of like passing an accident on the, on the interstate. It's yeah. just the rubbernecker delay effect. It's so there. And, and what we want, because we want to prioritize what God prioritizes, what we want is to be grieved by drama, not yeah. entertained by it or drawn into it. Yeah. But we, we, we want to see it as something that we should mourn over and then try to resolve because that honors God. Yeah, yeah. So you talked a lot about, obviously, unity. Um, why, why is it so important? Let's just go back to the start. Yeah. Why is it so important? we as a church work together for unity. Yeah. I think it's kind of what I just said, that, that the reason we want to be grieved by drama rather than entertained by it is because God wants unity. He, he loves peace. He is a God of peace, and, and we're called to be peacemakers, all of us. It's not just, um, it's not just the, the leaders that are supposed to be protecting this unity. God, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. That's a basic Christian good. And I think the because that work can be really hard to do, we won't be able to keep it going unless we remember ultimately how important it is to God. And because we love Him, we love what He loves. Um, I, I love on page 164, this is where they come back to the importance of unity. Um, they, they just sum it up near the bottom of that page. When you teach about church unity, they're saying to here to church leaders, Talk about it in terms of its value to God. Yeah, unity is pleasant. Yes, it makes for happy church. Yes, it keeps meetings shorter. But ultimately, unity is valuable because it reflects God's character and being, citing 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 there. More specifically, God cares about our unity because it shows off his power and wisdom. That's Ephesians chapter 3 that we keep coming back to yeah, over yeah. and over. So we trust that the Spirit's work in us is to give us hearts that love what God loves, where his law is written on them. And if, if that's happening, then we'll love unity more and more and more. Amen. Amen. Anything else you want to say on this chapter, brother? <clears throat> yeah, I think, um, I think another good summary way to think of what we're asking of our, our members here, to, to borrow a category we've used many times before in our discussions about this book, is we're asking them to see the imperfections of our church as owners of our church, not as consumers of it. We've used that over and over and over. I'm going to use it one more time. As a consumer, when I go to a restaurant, if I have a bad experience because the food wasn't just as I asked or the service wasn't prompt and friendly or whatever else, my response to that as a consumer is probably going to be to take my business elsewhere. And if we approach our church as consumers, when we see the imperfections, that'll be our tendency. If not to take it elsewhere, at least to detach ourselves and look and and talk about the problem that they have. Yep. Whereas in my home, which I own, if something breaks, when something breaks, well then, I mean, it's my problem. And I'm going to call a friend to come and fix it for me since I can't do it myself. I, uh, seriously, I, I can't just take my business elsewhere. It's my house. I have to do something about that. 
And and that's the mentality and, and, and the heart posture we hope for among our members that, that the imperfections are, it, it's, it's with your house. You own it. It's on us to make sure that we're doing what we can to, to, to bring greater health and to restore it. So please pray and work together for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Amen. Amen. That is, that is so helpful. Uh, and with that, I think we will uh, leave it there. I think that's a really fitting place uh, to end this podcast. Uh, thank you again for, for joining us. And Lord willing, join us uh, next week for chapter 10 and a mystery guest. I'll leave it there. <laughs>